B2B buyers have changed dramatically over the past five years. So why haven't B2B salespeople? In this episode of the Sales and Marketing Management Podcast, Julie Thomas of Value Selling Associates expands on ideas she presents in her new book, The Power of Value Selling. Welcome to another episode of the Sales and Marketing Management Podcast. If you like what you hear in this episode, you can visit salesandmarketing.com to access archived podcasts as well as articles, webinars, white papers, and deep dive special reports on trending B2B sales and marketing topics. Our podcast is also available pretty much wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's common knowledge that B2B buying teams are more educated than ever. They self-educate to the point that surveys show many buyers would prefer a transaction that doesn't involve a sales rep. Product-led sales is history, says Julie Thomas, our guest on this episode of the Sales and Marketing Management Podcast. It's all about the prospect, how you relate to them, uncover their wants and needs, and build a collaborative relationship to solve problems worth solving. In her new book, The Power of Value Selling, Thomas says you can have a clearly superior product And if the buyer doesn't have a positive experience, you'll lose the sale anyway. Modern selling is value selling. But value selling is not just knowing your company's value proposition or even showing ROI. It's more complicated than that. It's showing prospects why they should listen to you, building credibility, and showing them that you know them. It's asking the right questions at the right time, including anxiety-inducing questions. Here's my conversation with Julie Thomas. Julie Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Where are we reaching you today? Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here. I'm actually in San Diego, California uh, right now. So that's where I am. You are president and CEO of Value Selling Associates. I'd like to start by having you tell us more about Value Selling Associates and your own background in sales. Awesome. Thank you for the opportunity. Value Selling Associates is a sales methodology provider that operates primarily in the business-to-business space, and we equip sales organizations and teams with the skills, the processes, and the tools to better engage their prospects, convert them to clients or customers, and compete on value, not price. I got into this role after being a longtime client of Value Selling Associates. I started my sales career at a business services firm, technology advisory firm. Then it was called Gartner Group. Now it's called Gartner. And we used value selling as our methodology to help us move from pushing products and services to really understanding the impact or the outcomes that a customer could measure by doing business with us. And I fell in love with the methodology. It was probably the fourth or fifth training program or methodology I had been exposed to in my career. And this one just made sense to me. And I embraced it and I uh, became a top performer because of it. And it has... I fell in love with it. And when the opportunity came for me to leave Gartner Group and join Value Selling, I jumped on it. And I've been here now for about 20 years. Okay. 
Well, let's talk about some of what's in your latest book. The book is called The Power of Value Selling. Your company is called Value Selling. Value Selling as a concept is certainly not new. However, it is open to interpretation. How do you define value selling? Value selling is the approach that a sales team or sales individual takes to understand how an individual buyer or or set of buyers at a prospect are going to justify the decision. So it is a deliberate conversational cadence, if you will, to take the value proposition that a company has and bring it into the microcosm of the organization you're selling to and understand the specific quantification of those outcomes that will ultimately motivate them to take action. And the difference, I think, between value selling as a concept and value selling as our program is many people confuse I know what my value proposition is, so of course I'm selling value. Or we have an ROI calculator, so of course I'm selling value. Or I have a value engineer that I bring in at the appropriate time at the sales organization, so of course I'm selling value. Um, But all of that is incomplete if those resources and those conversations aren't happening with the right people in the right context about the right things. A statement you made early in the book jumped out at me. You said, selling value is not the same as understanding your value proposition. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, your value proposition, which is probably fine-tuned and honed and um, and created by your marketing organization or in, in conjunction maybe with the product organization, is your broad promise to the marketplace. It is your broad promise of the potential impact you can have on an organization. So we save you money. We save you time. We improve your productivity. We reduce errors. Those are all great value propositions. But value selling is saying, okay, I'm talking to Paul Nolan, and I want to know how he's going to quantify the outcome of implementing my solution to him. And how's he going to quantify that? Because every buyer at some point makes the decision, is this worth it? Mm -hmm. And we always know exactly with great specificity what we're going to ask them to invest in our products and services. But we often only know as sellers that there's a probable relative increase in productivity or we're going to save you 5% time or 3% in manual re-entries or improve your go-to-market efficiency. But what does that really mean in terms of dollars and cents? Because Mm -hmm. someone's got to compare that to the the check they're going to write to implement your products and services. That's where the savvy value selling sales professional really makes the difference. Mm -hmm. And value accrues to business metrics. It it, it includes, it's measured in financial terms. And the challenge is many sales reps today are only trained in how to demo their products and the features and functions they offer. They don't know how to translate that to business outcomes that can be measured. One of the terms you used, I think it popped out at me, uh, is personalization at scale or personalization scale, which I love. Uh, that's that's kind of a nice summary of, of what you're talking about. Yes. Well, personalization at scale can mean a couple of things. So certainly 
when you're in a sales conversation, that has to be personalized. At the end of the day, your conversation has to be focused on the buyer, their needs, their requirements, their processes. You have to meet the buyer where they are and you have to add value to the buyer during the sales process because people spend their time before they spend their money. Mm -hmm. um, personalization at scale also allows you to do better outreach in filling the pipeline. So these generic messages and outreach, people are sick of them. In the book, you review a lot about the evolution of the B2B buyers, some of it which a lot of us are aware of. Um, we know they're more self-educated. You talk about that. We know they're well down the path of buying decisions before they even uh, identify themselves as a prospect. And we know their preference is for a, even for a rep-free buying experience, uh, some recent studies have shown. Can you give us some insights on today's B2B buyer that many salespeople and sales managers don't take into account? Well, the other thing that Gartner has, has shared in some of their research is when a buyer has a complete rep-free experience, buyer remorse is higher. Hmm. So there's a couple of things that going, go, go on. I think the buyer wants a rep-free experience because they don't perceive that the rep adds value to them. They perceive that the rep is pushing product or pushing their own agenda on them or forcing them into their process as opposed to facilitating the buyer and meeting the buyer where they are. So one of the tactics to resynchronize that buying process and that selling process is to understand where the buyer is and meet them there. And then conversationally, without completely telling them that you're going to bring them backwards, but conversationally understanding how they got where they are. Because just like, you know, there's an old adage in, in medical science, physician, do not heal thyself. Mm -hmm. It's because they're usually not objective. The same is true for our buyers. They are usually not as good at self-diagnosing what they really need because they often have tunnel vision blind spots, or they don't have the experience that a sales rep might have when it comes to the uh, solutions that might be available to them. Mm -hmm. So I think sales reps really need to learn that value isn't just what happens after you buy my product and service and implement it. It's also how I engage you and add value and insight and don't waste your time and am respectful and have empathy and understand where you are and meet you there. Mm -hmm. And the, the interesting thing, Paul, is I was reading an article from Todd Capone, who's a former client and a, and a sales influencer that, that I really enjoy a lot of his writing. He found an article from the 1920s that basically said the same thing. And the premise was that the catalog was going to be the demise of the sales rep. When, when catalogs came out, people were just going to go to the catalog and buy things. And I think of the old, you know, as a kid, when I'd go through the Sears and Roebuck catalog and circle all the things mm -hmm. that I wanted and, you know, that were, that I was never going to get, but it was fun to dream. Right. right. And um, while it's, it's new, it's not that new. And every technical and technology innovation has empowered the buyer to rely less and less on the sales rep, mm -hmm. but the good ones still add value. 
we you know you we all have it in our head about this independent and self-educated buyer and you mentioned two things about b2b buyers in your book that seem to be at odds but i i kind of ended up telling me, myself that two things can be true at once you said buyers know how they want to be sold to and you have to pay attention to that and at the same time buyers don't always know how to buy and i think this is part of your chapter or at least close to your chapter about properly performing discovery in order to correctly diagnose each buyer's needs. It reminds me of the Steve Jobs uh, philosophy that uh, he wanted not to give customers what they want, but to figure out what they're going to want before they do. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but buyers not always being good buyers. Oftentimes when buyers are buying something, it's their first time buying it. Right. You said they don't do it a whole lot. They don't do it a whole lot. So they can't have tremendous competency, which is why in many cases um, we're finding the business buyers bringing procurement in sooner because those people, quote unquote, know how to buy. But then they don't understand the problems and the nuances and subtleties in the offerings. So here's an example. Last year, we brought on a, a wonderful new client. They came to us and had a buying committee, global buying committee of 25 people. And mm -hmm. their objective was for those 25 people to come to consensus. And they took, I don't know, 15 vendors down to eight, down to three, and then we were fortunate and, and worked really hard and ultimately they selected us. Well, these 25 people probably couldn't agree on what to have for lunch. Mm -hmm. Yet they're trying to agree on what is the sales methodology platform that we're gonna use globally to move the needle on our sales performance in 2024 and beyond. And so you've gotta not only navigate convincing one or two people, you've got to cast a wide net and and convince this larger group that is often dysfunctional, often. Mm -hmm. Often you've got, you know, people that have maybe their own private agenda and and navigating that is is really a spider web of communication that's the savvy sales professional has got to get good at understanding. Mm -hmm. and navigating. Well, you talk about, you know, again, the buying, the concept of a buying team has been around for a bit. Mm -hmm. And you talk about a seller or a sales lead, sales rep, uh, some oftentimes being more of a captain of a team. So in the sense that I think what you're saying is there are a lot of people that will be part of a sales process in a lot of, in a lot of sales, correct? And so uh, you're having a lot of different people on your selling team address these buying teams, right? Absolutely. And the interesting thing is the sales professional who ends up being the quarterback of that team to use mm -hmm. a, uh, you know, U.S. football analogy, but it's the, the captain of that team has influence, but not authority. And they may be bringing in, you know, a value engineer, a sales engineer to create the use case demo. Maybe mm -hmm. there's some regional coverage or product specialists that also get involved based on the complexity of what they're selling. So now all of a sudden as the account executive or account manager, whatever my title is, who's responsible for selling this total solution to a large company, I've got a lot of moving pieces and a lot of different 
opportunities for communication to happen between various people in that organization and coordinating that and making sure everybody is on the same page and collaborating and sharing information is critical in these team selling environments. Let's dig a little bit deeper into your thoughts on discovery. Um, you have a chapter on how top sellers ask good questions. Two questions here. When you work with your clients, is that a frequent mistake you see is, is they ask the wrong questions? And how can asking better questions be taught or learned? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. So number one, that is almost always part of the reason that we're brought in. Um, and I think it's a, a, a couple of common themes that we see is number one, they're not asking enough questions. They ask a few questions, they uncover a problem they know they can solve, and they stop asking questions and start telling them about their product. You know, that's great, Paul. I'm glad that's an issue you have. We're the perfect provider for you. And they start pitching and move mm -hmm. right there. So that's mm -hmm. one of the things we hear. Number two, Many sales reps believe that discovery is the front end of the sales process and then they stop. So maybe it's the first call, maybe it's the first couple of calls, they ask questions. But the reality is every time you engage that someone from that organization, you have an opportunity to deepen your understanding and insight. So discovery in many ways never ends because certain questions that might not be appropriate to ask at the beginning of the sales cycle absolutely have to be asked in the middle and the end that might be what is your buying process how do things happen how do things get done in your organization who else needs to be involved who would have the power to say no if the buying committee makes the recommendation to go through that well those mm -hmm. are inappropriate in my opinion questions to ask on day one mm -hmm. but day 10 day 20, however time you've invested, those become really important questions. So we know that questioning is the foundation for good communication and in, in good sales. Now, there is a time when I have to educate you on what we do. There is a time that I have to share my insight and provide that foundation. But questioning gives me the context that I can make that education more relevant for you and it's a skill and mm -hmm. just as listening is a skill you know some salespeople have two modes of communication and it's one of them is not listening it's mm -hmm. talking and waiting to talk <laughs> um and but it's listening it's responding not reacting it's not having a script but having a destination that you're going to and knowing that I have to listen to your question to ask the appropriate next question. And, and the question that I wrote down might not be appropriate because you already answered it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's listening, it's questioning, it is preparing, but not preparing a script, preparing a roadmap of how I'm going to manage that conversation. Can you explain the concept of what you call anxiety questions? Sure. Anxiety questions are used in certain situations. Um, they're not always used, but they're designed to be provocative. So they might be used with an overconfident buyer who doesn't think they have a reason to change or a need to look at your product or service. And a, a, an anxiety question would be then designed to be a little bit provocative, 
not destroy the relationship, but get the wheels turning in that prospect to get them to think that maybe they've missed something and they, they should be rethinking something. Um, we use anxiety questions if somebody is overconfident, doesn't believe they have a reason to change. If there is no urgency, we might use an anxiety question to raise the level of urgency. You know, we started this conversation where you asked me about the localization and translation. Mm -hmm. Anxiety question, the whole, that concept doesn't play well outside of the U.S. Like, oh, you U.S. people, you're always oh, in people's faces. You know, you're so, you so, so we have to, we, we soften And again, in certain cultures, an anxiety question might only be asked by a senior executive or a appear to who you're asking it to because that would be less confrontational. But okay. the idea is there's times in sales cycles where you need to get them to think differently. You need to shake things up and be a little more provocative. And that's the concept that we call an anxiety question. Getting prospects or companies or even current customers off the status quo is probably one of the more common and, and challenging points uh, you know, uh, to, 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 to tackle, correct? Absolutely. Um, especially with somebody who's incredibly risk averse. I mean, right. I've heard prospects literally say, Julie, I'm going to stay with the devil I know, right. even though I am miserable, rather than go through the pain of change to the devil I don't. Right. Um, and again, that's the distrust I think they have of people have been at times duped and not by a sales rep that might not be as transparent on what they're offering is and what they're more importantly, what they're offering isn't sometimes. It, it feels like anxiety questions are one thing you really cannot script because you have to personalize them. I agreed. And again, they can be script like you can have them in your back pocket and think about if this comes up, here's here's an anxiety right. question that I might use. Right. Um, because usually when they're needed in the conversation, it's because because things aren't going well. Like I'm not getting, you know, the dialogue going or the insight I need from that buyer. And what happens when things aren't going well? If adrenaline goes up, the brain shuts down, right? So mm -hmm. I want them in my back pocket. But again, we don't believe anything is a script. In, in all my years of selling, I have never had one customer follow their lines the way I thought they should when I was communicating with them. So I can have questions I'm going to ask. I can have outcomes I want to drive that conversation toward, but I have to actually listen to the customer and respond and not just react with the next question. Okay. Your book is full of good thoughts on how B2B customers have changed, how selling has changed, COVID impacted that, technology impacts that. But then there is a lot in your book that repeats a message that I pulled out, and that is the more things change, the more they stay the same. Selling is still about, and you say this over and over in your book, still about establishing credibility and trust and a word you use often in the book, connection. Is that fair? I think so. I think people, and, and especially after COVID, I think we're hungry for connection again. And people want to be seen they want to be heard. Buyers are no different and they want to be understood. And I think the sales, the foundation for the best sales reps are the people that are equipped to build 
good relationships. And, and business aside, what makes a good relationship? It's somebody who cares about us. It's somebody that we trust will do the right thing and not tell us what we want to hear, but sometimes tell us what we need to hear. Mm -hmm. And sales reps that establish that level of trust with their clients will always outperform those that have just that are just pushing product. Let me tell you what I do. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you how great my product is, uh, you know, and overly rely on a demo and hope the customer connects all those docs without them. Sometimes it happens, but it's rare. Right. The book is The Power of Value Selling. Uh, the author is Julie Thomas. Um, I'm sure it's available wherever people buy their books. I, obviously, we can't cover everything that, that's in the book. Anything that you want to talk about that uh, you should that people should be aware is in the book? I think the whole concept of selling value is is more relevant today than it has ever been. And I think part of that is because, especially in the technology world, we have become overly reliant on if I can just get the prospect into a demo, I'm going to wow them with the sizzle and my features and my functionality. And they're going to figure out how to buy the business, you know, how to make the business case. And we're going to move forward. Mm -hmm. And I don't think um, in today's world that is going to lead to successful outcomes that are sustainable. It is about the prospect. It's about the measurable outcomes and impact that they can justify those decisions with and make those investments. And today we're not only fighting and fighting is the wrong word. We're not only selling to be the best alternative in our space, we are fighting for capital between somebody who's deciding, do I automate my sales organization or do I do something with the engineering team? And so that business case has got to be solid in order to win the capital and be successful. Share your website address for Value Selling Associates. We will link to it in the notes, but uh, let people know where it is. It's valueselling.com. Very, very creative oh, on our part. So valueselling.com. Um, I can be reached at julie.thomas at valueselling.com or please find me on LinkedIn. Would, would love to know you. Julie, I appreciate your time. And hopefully when the next book comes out, we can get together again. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Happy New Year. You too. Thanks for listening to the Sales and Marketing Management Podcast. Our podcast archive is available at salesandmarketing.com under the podcast tab. You'll also find articles, white papers, webinars, and in-depth focus reports on timely B2B sales and marketing topics at salesandmarketing.com. You should also be able to find our past episodes wherever you access your favorite podcasts. Of course, the easiest way to know when we publish a new podcast episode is to subscribe through your podcast app and you'll be notified every time we publish a new episode. If there are topics that are pertinent to our B2B sales and marketing audience that you'd like to hear more about, or if you want to propose a podcast guest for an upcoming episode, reach me at paul at salesandmarketing.com. Our theme music is titled Motivational Day by Audio Coffee, and it was sourced at pixabay.com. 